You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Real Vision Daily Briefing, live without a net. I'm here once again with Ed Harrison. Ed, welcome. Looking good, Lewis. Looking good, <laughs> Billy Ray, I think. How are you, man? Good. I am very good. I haven't seen you since, hey, uh, just uh, uh, Friday, in fact. Uh, we were together live for the first time in, what, 15 months, I think it is? Yeah, something crazy like that. It's great to see the world getting back to normal. It was great to actually get to be physically in the same room with you uh, and to do a daily briefing. What day was that? I've lost track. You're saying it was Friday? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Because right. you were you were in Miami. Now you're back in New York. It must be feel pretty weird. Yeah, it was really great. It was great being in Miami. I just want to say at the top of the show, I was, I was personally very touched to see how many people came up to me just to take the time out to say hello, uh, to thank us for what we're doing. Uh, and it's really great to be able to do that. It's an honor to be able to, to do that and have so many people uh, obviously uh, watching what we're doing uh, and, uh, and hopefully getting some value from it. So thank you uh, so much to everyone who came up and said hello. I'm going to be reaching out over the next couple of days. It was kind of overwhelming how many people... Uh, came up to say hello. So we're going to be uh, reaching out in the next couple of days uh, to everyone. So, Ash, you know, uh, as you know, I'm the guy on RVDB who talks the least about crypto. I usually want to stick to global macro, but I want to talk about the crypto conference in that context just because there were so many people from the global macro side moving over. I, I want to give you my take on what this means, how I'm thinking about it, and also get an understanding from you uh, of, uh, you know, what your takeaways were because you were there for the weekend, you were there for longer than I was. And so I think that that could be a good way for us to think about the integration of crypto into the investing landscape. Well, that's exactly right, Ed. And I've been really excited to hear the macro guy who spent a couple of days at the crypto conference. I'd love to hear what your takeaways were. Uh, yeah, so I was there on uh, Thursday and Friday, Wednesday through Friday, actually. And so I missed a lot of the actual conference itself. In fact, I never went into the conference. And you can talk to me about, you know, actually, you know, walking the, the, the floor and seeing what was there. But I went to a lot of the, uh, the after parties, the uh, launch events, et cetera. And what I took away is that, you know, 99% of the people that I encountered were investors in the macro space. That is traditional investors who saw an opportunity in crypto uh, that they were moving over into. And interestingly enough, uh, I would say without a fail, no one was talking about the price action in crypto as something that caused them to get into the space per se. They were talking about crypto as a platform for the digitization of content. Uh, when I say content, the di digitization of value. So things that they would have done or wanted to do in the analog world moving over to the digital world. And the question is, is over what time frame does that happen? What are the parameters around which that happens in terms of regulation? And you know, who has first mover advantage? And does that first mover advantage actually accrue 
as a benefit uh, in, in the way that, say, MySpace uh, did not get a benefit vis-a-vis -vis Facebook. Yeah. Tell us more about that. What do you think the future trajectory is and what do you think those investors are seeing? So what I, you know, uh, now I'm talking about institutional investors. I mean, when I think of the investors, I didn't really re meet that many when, uh, real um, retail investors. It was a lot of institutional investors who were making this move over. And what they were basically saying is, I, I spoke to one investor in particular who had a very good, I thought it was a very apt analogy. He said that, you know, I'm looking at crypto as a space where there are a, a multiplicity of different app stores. Each of these individual uh, boxes, each of these individual currencies are a platform on which you can build your app store. You can do any and everything there. There are a, a sundry different things that, uh, that you can take away over time. Now, some of those app stores are better than others, and some of them, the network effects of the app store is going to make that particular platform have staying power. We don't know which of those there are. Some of them are going to be Nokia, and they're going to go uh, the way of uh, Nokia or REM. Uh, and some of them are going to end up being Android and, uh, and, and the iPhone. And so what you're seeing now, both in terms of the layer two solutions, but also in terms of the cryptocurrency price is sort of what I would call a, uh, a gold rush mentality where people are trying to get the first mover advantage to be able to scale, get those network effects and get in there. And then the question is, is what are the killer apps for the investment community? We're talking about uh, derivative transactions. We're talking about uh, bonds uh, that can be tranched. Uh, we're talking about tokenization of existing uh, types of securities that you see in the real world. Uh, all of those kinds of things are applications that will come to the future. They're waiting for that all to happen. Uh, and then the question is, is what are the parameters from a regulatory perspective? What's the regulatory umbrella that allows them as regulated entities to get into that playing field in a way that gives them comfort? Yeah, that's all extremely well said. Uh, I had a few key takeaways myself uh, from the days that I was there. And I'll talk a little bit more generally about what I think the state of crypto is. But I wanted to just touch on a couple of the points that I took away very directly uh, from this experience. Uh, the first was exactly what you said, Ed. We're 100% on the same page, spot on here. Uh, the fact that these folks, the institutional investors, were physically there on the ground at the parties, walking around. I saw uh, some of them uh, on the day of the conferences, uh, walking through the event space themselves. I thought that was very interesting. The fact that they were physically present, these are people who have a very high opportunity cost on their time, uh, and they showed up. By the way, you could often tell because they were the guys wearing the golf shirts uh, with a sport coat over them in Miami, uh, but there were quite a number of them, and that really was, uh, I thought, a pretty powerful statement in itself, the fact that they'd taken the time out to come. This is something that I didn't see, uh, even in the go-go heydays of 2017, the last massive bull market cycle. That was not something uh, that I saw in those conferences. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, the second point, one of the things that kept coming up in the conversations uh, that I had, that you had with some of the folks uh, who were institutional investors uh, and in the institutional investing space, was the concern uh, about regulatory uncertainty, about compliance and governance uncertainty. This was a meta theme that came up uh, around the folks that we were just talking about, and I thought that that was a really interesting one. Uh, the other thing that I thought was rather interesting 
was that I spoke to some people who had been uh, in the traditional institutional investing space, uh, people who were in businesses like market making. In other words, folks who spent a lot of time focusing on price action, uh, and they thought it was a bearish signal uh, that crypto prices did not hit 40,000. They didn't have a major upswing. Obviously, we had some announcements uh, while we were there, uh, specifically uh, about uh, about uh, a country in Latin America coming aboard uh, to use uh, cryptocurrency as legal tender, El Salvador. Uh, this is uh, something that was a big story, uh, and yet it didn't really move the needle uh, for prices of Bitcoin. I think it's an incredibly bullish story uh, for Zach Mallers, uh, for Jack Mallers and Zap, uh, but didn't really move the needle on price for the broader space. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. The, the other third takeaway that I thought was 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 kind of almost amusing uh, was the cultural aspect of it. I thought it was really interesting uh, that they had, and you unfortunately didn't get to see this because you didn't get to go to the con- uh, the, co- the convention floor, uh, but they had an art gallery set up, and it looked like a, a pop up art gallery that could have been uh, anywhere in Brooklyn uh, or Jersey City uh, or Soho. It was this really cool hip place where there were people who didn't look like uh, they were institutional investors. They didn't look like coders. They were these cool artist uh, people. And it's interesting to me that the space now is starting to bring into the fold some of those people. It's become a full-fledged cultural moment in addition to a technology story, in addition to an investing story. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, Ash, the the question that I'm asking myself, uh, and I think this is a global question, is what is this emblematic of from where we are in the cycle, in the business cycle, because this particular business cycle is very different. We've had this pandemic, we have massive fiscal stimulus, we are continuing to have monetary stimulus, even though, you know, we've had gangbusters growth, and we also have some level of inflation. And what are the antecedents to this that we can point back to and think about in a interesting way? Now, if you think about this gold rush mentality, one thing that I've been toying with uh, in terms of where we are is thinking about this as sort of um, the pandemic in a weird way as as sort of a mid-cycle pause, i.e. more akin in certain ways to um, the interregnum uh, in 97, 98, when you had the Asian crisis and the uh, LTCM crisis, in the sense that Alan Greenspan was talking about irrational exuberance in 1996. And it was only in 1998 that we were actually off to the races. We had five consecutive years of the S&P 500 going up, 96, 97, 98, 99. Uh, Actually, I think it was 95 through 99, uh, more than 20%. And it was early on in that that Greenspan was musing about irrational exuberance. Potentially, you could look at what's happening now as uh, this is, you know, when you look at the internet days, the equivalent of uh, the consolidation phase, where the next le- leg up is the leg that is sort of the blow off top. Mm. Uh, that's just something I'm thinking about in terms of uh, what does it mean for assets writ large, you know, just from a general global macro perspective. And then what does it also mean in terms of the killer app? Uh, for crypto. So to the degree that we're talking about the different cryptocurrencies as app stores and getting scale, what is the killer app for those market makers that you've met, for those individuals who are looking for a regulated environment to give them an umbrella under which they can act uh, uh, you know, in a greater way 
in in the crypto space. So that's kind of how I'm thinking of it now. Um, and I think that it's interesting to think about the event that we had in terms of what it signals about uh, where we are going forward, especially to the degree that you said that the price action was more representative of consolidation than it was of a breakout to the to the upside. Yeah, I think that's right. It's spot on, Ed. Such an important conversation to have. Uh, I love the way that you can tie this back, the crypto story uh, to the broader macro story, which brings me uh, to the question that we were talking about offline, which is about inflation uh, and a topic near and dear to your heart, cycling. Yes. Yeah, that was interesting. I saw this article. Actually, Jim Bianco sent it to me because he's a bit of an inflationista. Uh, and I, I, I joked in Twitter that it was a plant, but he was talking about a, a you know, really expensive bicycle uh, hinting at inflation. And since I'm a cyclist, he's a cyclist. We talk about this, how uh, there's this uh, this shadow um, um, used car market, a similar uh thing that's going on in the used bike market where you have massive uh, inflation there. And the question is, is what does that mean for the broader economy? Because you see inflation everywhere. And how, you know, how is this going to feed through both in terms of the Fed's new reaction function and also in terms of uh, this broader sense of are we still in the post um, in the in the post uh, 1997 98 scenario that i'm talking about uh so that's how i'm thinking about the inflation is it that the fed is going to crack down on it and therefore we could be closer to the end of cycle no it seems to me based upon the fed's reaction the new reaction function which is waiting until you see the whites of inflation's eyes um even though we have this transient inflation we are not going to have any sort of, of tightening of policy except to the degree that the bond market tightens policy uh, as it did in Q1. So I think that gives room to run to a certain degree for risk assets. Yeah, so you don't, you simply do not see the Fed acting without enormous, enormous precursors that force their hand to do so. Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the NFP number that we got on Friday as an example, uh, it, it, this is a case of, uh, bad news being good news. We didn't make the number. We did actually make the number on the unemployment level, which is 5.8% versus the 6.1% that we had before. But it was because labor force participation had gone down. So all of that is relatively negative relative to expectations. But what it means is the Fed's going to be on hold, which means that we're still moving back to the baseline that we want to. But in a situation in which uh, we have an accommodative monetary policy, you know, uh, keeping things going. So from an asset price perspective, that is bullish. And then the only question is what happens, therefore, to, uh, mar to market-based uh, levels of, of yields, like the 10-year yield or, or the five-year yield, given that the market is increasingly understanding that the, the Fed is going to continue to look through inflation levels. Do we have a run up to 2%, 2.25% in the 10 year? And then what does that do to uh, asset prices? I think that's the sort of the near to medium term risk. Uh, but I think that really we're in a position now where uh, people are increasingly thinking about a risk off environment. Yeah. 
Very interesting points. Uh, let me shift gears back uh, to go back to the crypto space. And, uh, you know, this has been an interesting uh, few days for me. I got a couple hours sleep last night. I got in uh, very late this morning, last night, early this morning. Uh, but I'm still sorting through all of my reactions to uh, this particular conference, the people I met, the conversations I had, uh, and just some of the reactions of, frankly, this is the first time I've left Manhattan uh, since 2019, I believe. Uh, so physically getting out and traveling again uh, was really an interesting experience as well and has gotten me th thinking through some of this stuff. So again, this is very raw. I haven't organized my thoughts yet, but I wanted to talk them through with you actually live on the air to get some of your reactions to it. You know, my first big picture takeaway, having been out of the house and physically doing stuff, is how manualized our world still is. The amount of paper that still exists uh, when you physically print a boarding pass, you know, you scan your QR code and you print a boarding pass. Now, I know that there are some people who use their QR card to get directly on the airplane, but there's still a tremendous amount of manualized things in your life. The fact that you, you know, I physically came home and my doorman handed me a stack of mail uh, to literally the guy in Miami that I handed a dollar to uh, to get a bottle of water. It's still an incredibly manualized world that we live in. We think about the digitization because that's what's new, but the reality is there's still a long way to run on this digitization trend because there's still so much legacy manual analog processes that we still do every day in our lives. Uh, and the second thought that I had is that big picture, you know, spending time in this space, in the blockchain space, in the distributed ledger space, in the in the Bitcoin space, it's clear to me, and I know that this is something that's somewhat controversial, we'll have to have Max Weethy on to debate me on this, which is that the decentralized world, decentralized solutions, uh, solutions that are not owned by a particular company or government are unquestionably, in my view, the future. Now, that's not a statement about the price action. It's not a statement about the direction. It's not a statement about the sentiment of Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else. It's just very clear that decentralized solutions, the decentralized world, uh, it is what is what is rising very rapidly uh, to effectively become Web 3.0, that in the future, there are going to be fewer massive corporations that control our data because the architecture is being built that enables that to happen. Now, I know that that Max and some others have said, well, well, why do we need this? This isn't something that I've ever wanted. This isn't something that I've asked for. I've never said, you know what I really need? I need an email system that's decentralized. And this has gotten me thinking in a very broad-based way uh, about the, the future trajectory uh, based on the past trajectory. You, know, you and I have been watching technology for a lot of cycles, very seriously uh, in both of our cases since at least the 90s. And the thing that I'm most fascinated by is the idea that the solutions that we have, the way that we lead our lives today, were not problems, quote-unquote, that we wanted uh, fixed because we didn't know that they existed. Uh, for example... Uh, when you and I were both uh, young guys uh, back in the 90s, and it was a big deal to have your first cell phone, uh, and it was cool to be able to be at a party and step outside and take a call from your Motorola StarTac Elite, uh, no one said, you know what I really need? A really efficient touchscreen way of being able to send SMS text messages to my friend. It wasn't a demand that anyone had. It wasn't a need that anyone felt. It wasn't an itch that anyone wanted to scratch. And yet, and yet, once the technology exists, it becomes absolutely indispensable to our lives once we become adjusted to it, once we become acculturated to it. So I'm always very sort of curious and thinking about this in a big picture way, because I think that the way that we think about technological development, the way that we think about supply and demand may be backwards. 
we hear, you know, find a problem and solve it, find a problem and fix it. But the reality is it really is supply that drives demand. Once you have the, once you have the solution, you realize that you want it or that you need it. And this is a very sort of in much an inversion of the way that we typically think about things. And I wanted to just throw that out there to you and get your opinion and your thoughts on that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, a lot to chew on. I, you know, uh, let me see if I can put it all in all the things I was thinking about as you were talking about that. First, I was thinking about Steve Jobs uh, and the iPhone and how it's exactly as you say. Um, and, you know, that's exactly as he sees it that really the customer comes to you in certain ways. You're not necessarily going to the customer. You're not getting uh, some sort of uh, review from the customer focus group, and then therefore let's go out and build this thing based upon what they said. Let's build some cool products and then let's market those products and we'll iterate on that once the, uh, once the customers uh, adopt and tell us what about the new product they like or they don't like. That's I think right. that's much more in line with what you're talking about. And so to me, it, it sort of reinforces the land grab uh, paradigm that I'm talking about, this gold rush mentality, where basically you have a thousand different people out there doing a thousand different things or a million different things. And some of those things are going to fail. I mean, this is the essence of American entrepreneurial capitalism is, is that failure is not a, a badge of, of, uh, of discredit. It's a badge of honor. When you fail, it shows that you tried. And eventually some of those failures will turn into successes. We, sometimes you just don't know which ones are it's going to be. Um, I also think that just going back to my first initial thoughts when you were talking about we don't know what the killer app is, that's a positive in many ways. It says that we have a long way to go in terms of this uh, digitization of value. When you were saying that everything's done in an analog way in many ways, I'm using paper everywhere. Well, that tells you that there are there's still a lot of things that can be solved potentially uh, that you know crypto can be a part of. Uh, yeah. The last thing is uh, to take a slightly more weethyish uh, line. I would say that there, with the institutional investors, in terms of the regulatory overhang of crypto, the, there was an, a lingering debate about DeFi versus CFI that there were a lot of people who were thinking about centralized finance uh, moving over in a regulated way to a digital atmosphere, as opposed to the existing crypto world, which is decentralized finance, uh, and, and which is relatively unregulated. So these are people who almost invite regulation because they want a regulated uh, environment to be able to say to their investors and to say to the regulated entities in their existing businesses, look, we're doing these things over here and they're completely above board uh, and we are a legitimate company and these are legitimate actions that we're taking. Uh, an example that comes to mind for me is the article that just crossed the wires earlier today that I was sending you about uh, the seizure of cryptocurrency paid by Colonial Pipeline. 
to a Russian hacker ring. This was the first time that the U.S. Justice Department has recovered such a payment. This may this is now making headline news that uh, there's illegal activity going on that is creating infrastructure problems in the United States. That's how people are thinking about crypto in the mainstream. And when a institutional investor wants to get involved in the market, they want to make it so that people aren't thinking about that. They're thinking about a environment in which there is a umbrella of regulation that uh, makes it legitimate and that allows them to innovate within the, the financial world. And that's a financial world, by the way, again, which is more centralized, more CFI uh, than uh, the existing crypto world, which is more DeFi. Yeah. Boy, it's really intriguing, Ed. You and I are thinking about these in, uh, issues in very similar ways, and we've come to some similar conclusions through some different routes, uh, which I think is intriguing. Um, you know, I'll touch on some of those points in a moment, but to get to your earlier point uh, about innovation, there's a, a quote that is, I think it's twice apocryphal. It's a doubly apocryphal quote, but it is illustrative of the general point that we're talking about here. And the, the apocryphal quote is uh, Steve Jobs uh, allegedly at some point in an interview in the 1980s, and no one's been able to find the sourcing on it that I'm aware of. If you do see the sourcing, please send it to me. I'd be interested to see it. Uh, quoted Henry Ford saying, uh, if people asked me what kind of car they wanted, uh, I would have said they would have told me to build a faster horse. Uh, and that really is the distinction here, this idea of discontinuity, uh, of jump functions, of S-curves, of exp exponential growth, as Raul has talked about, uh, the idea that individuals want incremental change, uh, but the visionaries who see the future, uh, who understand that people don't want uh, what they don't know because they just haven't experienced it yet, is so much uh, part and parcel deep in the fiber of this space, and it makes it incredibly, incredibly difficult to pick winners. More on that later. Uh, but to your point about CFI versus DeFi, boy, I just think that's spot on. There are still civil wars raging in this space, and it was very clear to me, I didn't mention it at the top of the show because it's a trend that we've seen for a very long time, but there is ample evidence of it uh, in effect in Miami, uh, two of which uh, are the points that you've, uh, you've, you've touched on, which is uh, those who have a sort of a very libertarian political bent, uh, who don't want this to be regulated at all, who believe uh, in electricity uh, and mathematics, the principles of physics and math uh, to solve these problems. And those who say, look, this space, we want institutional investors to feel comfortable here. In order for that to happen, we need to have a robust regulatory, legal and compliance regime that allows the institutional capital to flow in. This is still very much very much a hot argument in the space is to, very unclear to me uh, how that sorts out, how it lands, how these very different camps manage to square uh, those very different positions. So I think that's absolutely something that is completely on the table right now as an active debate and totally unsolved. And the second uh, and a related point uh, is the debate between Bitcoin and everything else. Uh, the Bitcoiners right. feel very strongly uh, about the Bitcoin-only position. Uh, in their view, in the view of some, I should say, I don't want to mischaracterize it, anything that's not Bitcoin is a shitcoin. Uh, and therefore, something that, as they term it, the immune system, the cultural immune system of Bitcoin uh, needs to go out and attack uh, on Twitter, on Telegram, and elsewhere. Again, this is something that is still very much an unresolved series of issues in the space. And it makes it very hard to speak with certainty when you see these groups, uh, each of which has its adherents, 
uh, having this argument. It is very much, I think, an open issue. You know, uh, I want to attack the uh, that issue with regard, or not the, the issue that you were talking about, but the CFI DeFi issue uh, with um, this Enigma party that you and I went to. Uh, and first and foremost, I want to say, I uh, we uh, we had some selfies that we were taking. Apparently, you took a lot more selfies than I did, but I had one selfie. I wanted to give a shout out to Nick from Canada, who I met at the Enigma party. I, that's the only selfie that I took. Uh, but it, this was a guy who, uh, when I came to this Enigma party, he recognized me. We had a, we struck up a conversation. He said he actually is now in Cayman, a Canadian guy. He uh, met Rao. Uh, uh, Rao spent like 45 minutes with him, just, uh, you know, didn't even know him, was just very gracious. He just said, you know, Real Vision's been great for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm excited at how approachable you guys are. So it was great to talk to him. Nick, uh, shout out to you. Uh, yeah. But this Enigma party. I, I know that, I know that uh, you, you uh, had to run back uh, to get back home. But uh, if you would have stayed those extra few days, been there for the weekend, it was extraordinary uh, how many times that happened. And we heard precisely the same thing. And really, personally, just a pretty incredible experience. And by the way, Nick is very much the man about town at the Bitcoin conference. I ran into him at almost every party I was at all weekend. <laughs> he was out and about. That is too funny. That is great. You know, so this Enigma party where I met him, uh, I, I was looking up Enigma and, uh, and, you know, I spoke to these guys at length. Uh, I, I had a dinner the night before that I went to or two nights before Enigma was born in 2017. I'm looking at their website out of an international brokerage firm, Makor, uh, in response to a growing institutional demand for trusted access to digital asset trading. Okay. So that says it all right there. Now, what these guys told me is, look, what we're looking to do vis-a-vis, let's say the likes of Coinbase is we're looking to take an existing world infrastructure that people are already doing stuff in, and then we're going to put a crypto into that. It's all going to be one matrix uh, that you can do things, you know, a soup to nuts place where you can get, do your financial activity, including M&A, investment banking, blah, 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 on the blockchain. So this is exactly what I mean in terms of CFI versus DeFi. No one from that existing space wants to engage uh, with a, a, a counterparty that is not uh, regulated. That there's, there's, they're looking for some level of, of centralization. So I think there's that innate tension. As soon as you bring institutional investors into the space, as soon as you want to legitimize the space, you're going to run up against that tension. And my view is very strongly that uh, this is a space that will eventually be, uh, you know, co-opted into the existing institutional money environment. And therefore, there's going to be a very high level of centralization, CFI, happening. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, absolutely. And what we have right now is almost three steps in that process. You have the traditional uh, banking system, the financial services system, what folks in crypto call uh, fiat, but is actually obviously much larger than the uh, than the digital ecosystem that we're talking about. And then you have the uh, the BlockFi's of the world, obviously a sponsor of Real Vision Crypto. 
uh, and Celsius. I ran into Alex Mashinsky, uh, the CEO at Celsius, uh, while I was at the conference. And then you have on the far extreme, uh, you also have obviously the truly decentralized tokens, uh, things like uh, that happen on Uniswap and uh, how some of these liquidity providers uh, are working to gain uh, to get, do yield farming and some of the other functions. So again, still incredibly early in this space. I know we keep saying that over and over again, but it's such an important point to understand. And I think that whenever you're thinking about this, it bears in mind uh, understanding just how early it is, which makes it so exciting. But again, how difficult it is to pick the winners. Very, very difficult. Which brings me to something else that I wanted to talk to you about. Ed, have you heard of YAT? The YAT token? No, I have not. So this is this is something that uh, I was at a party uh, on, I think it was uh, a Saturday night, uh, maybe Friday night. They all blend together at this point. Uh, but this was a, something that was getting a tremendous amount of buzz. Let me just say this at the very beginning. It's a very rare thing that I find myself at a party with Paris Hilton. This isn't something that happens in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, so it's noteworthy for that reason. But it does speak to this sort of the pop culture aspect of what's happening there. So here's what YAT is in a nutshell. Uh, what YAT is doing is they are coining and creating NFTs around emojis. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it basically means is if you want to use an emoji as your signature, stamp it on your business card, YAT will sell you an NFT. So for example, Ed, uh, if you were a millennial, you might want to have avocado toast uh, on your emoji, right? So that you'd have an avocado and a toast. Now, what's really interesting about this is the fewer the emojis there are, the more valuable the NFT is. So, for example, some of the double tokens, one thing and then another, like the uh, magic ball and the mushroom, magic mushroom, uh, sold for, I think, over $100,000. Some of the double tokens uh, with two emojis were selling for higher than $200,000. I saw a real-time uh, price feed uh, that one of the investors showed me. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars for these emoji tokens. Uh, and for the single tokens, you know, the ones that are just a single emoji, like you want to be the palm tree, uh, the prices aren't even disclosed. They're being conducted in private sales. Um, what's the potential utility of something like this? Well, the idea is that eventually YAT is going to strike up deals with the major platform providers to reserve those spaces uh, as unique identifiers for members of the network. So, for example, if you're at a party uh, you could meet someone and say, I'm Eagle's Nest. And that would be where people could find you on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Telegram, on, uh, on email, on a series of other apps, all through the YAT token. Now, here's what I find interesting about this. My first reaction to this was, this is absolute insanity. We are going to look back on this YAT uh, at you know five years out from now and think, boy, that was a bubble indicator. Ash Bennington at a party with Paris Hilton is clearly a sign that the market is overheated. But how do we know that, right? How do we know? It sounds a little bit crazy if you're not in the space, but how do we really know that this isn't something that is going to become uh, you know, a highly desirable method of authenticating and identifying yourself? This actually solves a very real problem that people have, which is there's an incredible amount of fragmentation across all of these social networks. It's very difficult to identify people. Uh, I met up with someone who is a, a very well-known uh, Bitcoin uh, advocate, uh, and he was giving me his uh, telegram, and he showed me his phone and said, look, here's an entire page of fake accounts purporting to be me,
for scammers who are trying to, you know, basically get Bitcoin for people. Yat solves a very real problem. It sounds nuts. It especially sounds nuts uh, if you're maybe over 40 and you're not in the space. But this isn't something that I would ever bet against, right? I would never take, if you think about, you know, the idea of taking an unlimited, uh, you know, position where you could lose money uh, if this goes parabolic to the upside, you'd have to be a maniac to bet against Yat. It's very difficult to tell in the early stages which ideas are crazy uh, and which ideas have real resonance. I was talking to someone, a very seasoned investor. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say to you, uh, the, you know, the question I have actually from everything you said, because I'm, I'm definitely in the camp that says, uh, why should I care? And, you know, so there are some other people who are probably like, why should I care as well, who are listening to this? And they're like, I don't care about yet. And the, and but you know as soon as you talked about uh, the authentication of the, the account for this guy who was being uh, potentially people are being scammed and now you right. know that this individual is it's the real thing I thought to myself so how do we at Real Vision uh, connect the global macro world and the crypto world in a way that's interesting and that allows people to say how do I make money out of this? OK, if I'm a global macro guy and I'm looking for things that are legit and that are going to move the needle forward, how do I understand uh, how this is going to be rather than just completely dismiss the space? So I think that it, it is interesting from an NFT perspective. You know, you know, how do we at Real Vision talk to, say, NFTs uh, in a way that would legitimize the space for people who are skeptical and who are interested in markets and who want to make money. That, that's the thing that I'm asking. And I hope that we can solve that. And also anyone who's listening to this in the comments can talk to that because that, you know, to me, it's the intersection of traditional finance and this world that is going to move the needle in terms of uh, thinking about where things are going. Well, let me ask you this, Ed, Does does it necessitate uh, a, a shift in mindset from the traditional investing space when you think about how quickly these things are moving forward? Do we get to a point where it looks like it's almost impossible to pick individual winners uh, with something like Yat? And I'll give you an example. Someone who'd been around the investing space uh, for many decades uh, said to me when I expressed some skepticism about this, if uh, someone had come to you, if you were a VC and someone had come to you and said, I have a platform that's exactly like Facebook, except everything that you type disappears. Would you have funded that project? And the answer, of course, was no. And obviously, in retrospect, we know uh, that Snapchat became something that you know draw, drew in millions of users, uh, had an obviously extremely high market capitalization at peak. So how do you begin to think about a mental framework where you can assess where the winners are and where the, 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 you know, where the bubbles are? Is it something that's even possible to do? And if it's not possible to do, how does that influence the paradigms that you apply to your investments? To me, that's a very interesting question. Uh, it, it is, and I don't have the answer to that. But I would say that where I'm coming at it from is probably more Google uh, than it is uh, Snapchat. Because what I'm thinking about, here's a company that's, uh, that's proven. It bested a bunch of other companies. Let's talk about, you know, Lycos or, you know, Ask Jeeves, Yahoo, a bunch of other companies. The question, therefore, is, is at what point do you, as traditional investor, non-internet person, back, let's say, you know, 20 years ago, 
15 years ago, do you say that Google's the winner and I need to get in on that? It's not overvalued at this level. The IPO right. just happened. I, I think that this 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 company is going to win. I mean, that's how I'm thinking about it. That's where we can give the traditional uh, global macro people an understanding of, uh, you know, there is what I, you know, the technology is good and it's so good that network effects are building to a point where you need to have, uh, you know, exposure to this company. Same thing with eBay, you know, PayPal. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And right. I, I don't see the, other than money, I don't see yet the killer apps that are available. So yeah. we're to me, we're still at the early phase in terms of understanding that. Uh, and so, you know, I'd like to see more in terms of, especially in the NFT space, getting an understanding of uh, what that means for me who wants to see more proof of the killer app. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I was thinking when you mentioned Google, I looked it up. Google was founded in uh, September of 1998 uh, and went public uh, just over, uh, just almost exactly six years later uh, in August of 2004. Here's what's interesting. Obviously, this six-year uh, time horizon, and by the way, I remember the Google IPO extremely clearly, uh, and there were people who then argued it was a bubble. It was incredibly overvalued, right? But what's interesting is that's a six-year time horizon with an NFT with uh, a token, you can literally go from the ideation phase uh, to the implementation phase to it being publicly traded in six months. So as those time horizons compress dramatically, how do you think about, how do you bring a framework to the table that begins to evaluate that stuff? I mean, that is a really difficult question to answer. And maybe it's thinking about things uh, in different categories, in different ways, and trying to figure out what that looks like. We're really in a brave new world here, Ed. Yeah, and so, you know, go, just zooming the lens out again, I think that we need to continue to think about, you know, where we are in the cycle. What does this mean? Uh, you know, uh, first of all, I want to talk about Bitcoin uh, for a second, but just yeah. globally speaking, I think that thinking about this as a 1998, uh, 97 period, and then that there's still you know, room for for movement. But Bitcoin specifically, I think it's interesting that, you know, right as we got on, I was looking at Bitcoin, it had traded down slightly, it's at 35. It's been in this trading range ever since uh, we came down from the 64,000 level, somewhere between 35 and 38,000. All of that is below the uh, 200 day moving average, below the 28 day moving average, and support is really at the lower end now of the 30,000 range, potentially 29,000. So there is a significant air pocket down from here. To me, uh, just in terms of the actual value of the currencies and thinking about it from, is this a blow off top already that we're experiencing? I think it is interesting to think about uh, the possibility that even though we're consolidating, uh, we don't know if we're consolidating to move higher or lower. It, it could legitimately be either one at this point in time. Yeah. I know we've run a little bit long, but I wanted to get in at least one question here. Uh, actually, the one I was going to ask comes to us from Hugh Meyer, and you just answered that, Ed. Uh, he was wondering about your views and whether you were concerned uh, about BTC price action. So I'm going to move on uh, to the next one, which I think also is an interesting one that I'd like to get your view on. Uh, comes to us once again from Prius Omega. Uh, and the question is, 
decentralization gets rid of a lot of middlemen, but institutional investors seem to demand some middlemen for peace of mind. Does decentralization put too much trust slash responsibility onto individuals? Yeah, I don't have a view on that, but the uh, in general, the view I have is even with a centralized network, uh, you're going to see middlemen just get absolutely hammered. The you know, if you think about uh, the analog world moving on to the digital world, let's use Napster and use Apple as an example. So when it first happened, uh, music moved on, people started going on to uh, torrents and they downloaded stuff. Napster uh, was one of the places that they uh, found centralized, actually, to find stuff, even though it was somewhat decentralized. There was a centralized uh, node for Napster. Later, it became Torrent. But the, the reality is, is, is that when Apple basically uh, took Napster's model and got buy-in from the existing people, the, the studios, the price points went way down. Suddenly, you know, the the middleman, the Columbia musics of the world, the Warner musics of the world were getting absolutely hammered in terms of the the share that they could take. So my answer is, is that on some level, it doesn't matter if it's decentralized or centralized. Uh, uh, digitization is by definition deflationary. And so we, we should expect a whole wave of new industries think, you know, Sotheby's uh, to be to get hammered as a result of uh, this this whole process. Yeah. I'm not sure if some of our users are experiencing this, but it seems as though we may be having some problems with our YouTube channel. Uh, if everyone's experiencing those problems, we apologize. Um, you know, my answer to that question is that's exactly the right question. And that's the Civil War. And the answer is, uh, it depends on who you ask. People who are truly believe in decentralization would say decentralization isn't, or some form of this argument, I don't want to mischaracterize anyone's views, but it often looks something like this, at least when I ask them. Um, yeah, decentralization isn't perfect. There are going to be some bad actors. There are going to be some mistakes. But on balance, in their view, they believe that it is the best way to proceed forward uh, and that the degree of efficiency the degree of optimization and the degree of freedom uh, that decentralization provides will compensate for any of the risks and the downsides. Obviously, people who have, uh, you know, maybe are more on the institutional investing side feel very differently. Uh, and that's what we're witnessing here. And that's the, one of the broad meta themes that we're watching shake out. Yeah, so Ash, I'm glad that we had this. This is probably the most uh, I'll talk about crypto ever. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I, you know, I still leave with the concept uh, that I'm wondering, because I'm a global macro guy, uh, I'm wondering how can we uh, bring these themes, cross them over in a real way uh, so that people think, I actually want to get allocation, not to a currency, but rather to an ecosystem that I think adds value. And this is the way that I'm going to get, uh, uh, you know, this is the Google of the the new digital age the crypto age how do i get access to that uh that's that's the question that i think we need to be able to answer and uh i'd like to hear what other people think we need to be able to answer yes please jump in in the comments uh, on youtube on real vision's platform we'd love to hear your views on this and i would just say Ed, not only is it the most i've ever heard you talk about crypto i think this is probably literally our most raw 
unfiltered conversation that we've ever had on the platform as we both think these ideas through. Haven't reached any conclusions yet, certainly myself, but it's really interesting to do it. In some ways, Ed, this was like the, the Saturday night's drinks that you and I didn't get to do because you had to get back home. Yes, yes. The uh, D.C. cicada town called and, uh, and I, I unfortunately had to leave, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to do something like that again. Absolutely. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I loved it too, Ash. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.